Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. Open up with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'll make sure you get one. 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we are um, coming to a close of chapter 3 today, halfway through um, 1 Timothy. And uh, hey, Brian, right over here, bud. And, uh, um, and we are halfway through the book of 1 Timothy. And has it been? It's been good. I don't know. I've really been blessed by going through this. I'm, I'm kind of sh- surprised that I, I was somewhat struggling with going into 1 Timothy because I was like, Lord, I don't know if this is the right book for right now. Um, and I was praying about it, and we had just wrapped up Daniel, and you know, we, were, we, we were just kind of going through the epistles and, and things, and, and now we, we come to the pastoral epistles, and I'm like, I don't know if this is the right one. I don't know if this is the right one for right now. And uh, you know, the Word of God is applicable for everyone in any season and any time, and it doesn't matter where you are in it. Is it, is it. It's so true because I'm being so blessed by this stuff, man. It's so amazing. So, 1 Timothy chapter 3, and uh, stand with me, and we're going to read our, our text this morning. We just finished talking about qualifications of overseers, qualifications of deacons and such, and uh, we, we close the chapter out with what many to believe to be an old hymn of the early church. So here's what it says. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels proclaimed among the nations believed on in the world taken up in glory father we thank you so much for your word and for this particular word that we have before us this morning we ask you lord to speak into our lives god that whatever it is that we need to hear that your holy spirit would speak very clearly to us today and we thank you god that you desire to speak May we have ears to hear, God, and then may we have hearts to obey what it is that you say. Lord, we just pray right now that you would help the word of God to go forth, Lord, in a way that's applicable and understandable for each and every person. I pray you would get me out of the way that you can be seen today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So, Every organization has a, a code of conduct. You might think like, well, what, what is that? A code of conduct in, in, say, your workplace is generally found in your employee handbook. And essentially, it's, it's in that section that says, these are the types of things we want you to display as an employee of our company, right? So you, you read that over and you're like, oh, okay, well, yeah, I mean, I guess I can do that. Uh, most organizations actually require that their employees adhere to this code beyond the workplace. It's not just code for inside of the walls of the the workplace, but it's also meant for you to personally conduct your life according to this code of conduct. And, uh, um, you know, it's because we live in a world today where our lives are highly visible. Like you, 
you, you can see who somebody is, at least to the point of which they want you to see, um, through social media and, and through other people filming other people on their social media, on YouTube. You know, you have all these different venues where you can be captured and people can see uh, really how you live your life outside of maybe the context of your workplace or, let's say, the church. So, so let me illustrate how this works. You might recall back in June there was an incident that happened in Florida where a guy went into Costco, and they were telling him, sir, you need to wear a mask, you need to wear a mask. And the guy said, no, I'm not going to wear a mask. And he kind of got super belligerent, got very aggressive with the people. And then this guy started filming him, and then he started coming at the camera, and he was being super aggressive with the camera. And, uh, um, you know, so it, it obviously went viral. Those are the kind of things that, you know, you can expect to see on YouTube, like the trending, you know, on Instagram or YouTube or, or, or Facebook or whatnot. Snapchat, these, all these different things. And it, it, it so happened that the guy's, the guy's um, employer saw the video. And guess what? He got canned. He was the top insurance salesman for this company in his area. And he got canned. Why? Here's the statement from, from the business. They said the behavior in the video is in direct conflict with our company values. Threatening behavior and intimidation go against our core mission to be trusted advisors in our community. This company said, no, no. Remember the employee handbook? Remember the code of conduct? You will present yourself in these specific ways outside of, even in your own personal lives? Listen, this is happening over and over and over and over again. People are getting fired from their jobs because of the way that they're conducting themselves outside of the employer's, you know, hours and time. Why? Because you're a representative of the company. And the company says, listen, I'll buy your time for this much, but I need you to know that if you're going to represent us, then it's going to require a certain level of conduct for you for the rest of your employment with us. And you sign that little document that says, yes, I agree to this and that. Most of you don't read it. Or, wait, is that just me? I'm the only, okay, okay. I, I didn't mean to put that on you, but you know. I will do these things, and you sign your name. People are getting, listen, now, people are getting canned over, you know, the kind of party life that they have on social media, and they post pictures of themselves doing certain things. They come, show up on Monday morning, here you go, you're no longer an employee because of the way that you conduct yourself. People are showing up to work saying, oh, man, I can't, I, I called in sick on Friday, but man, hey, it seems like your social media was really active, and you seem to be in a different state than, uh, than your state of employment, and you were playing hooky, and so you get canned for that. Listen, your life is highly visible. You can't get away with these things. And, 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 and here's a word of advice to you. If you sign a document that says you're going to do something, you should probably do it. You should probably do it. It's a legal document that says these are the things that I'm um, signing up for. Well, just like a secular organization, listen, the, the, the church, God's church, has a code of conduct that both 
is to be employed within the four walls of the church, but also outside of the four walls of the church. It's not just an organization uh, code of conduct, but it's a, it's a lifestyle, if you will. That's really what God is calling us to. He wants us to live in a way that would honor and please Him and represent Him well. Because as you know, you're an ambassador of Christ, right? You walk out these four walls and you have a label on you that says ambassador. If you call yourself a Christian, don't be surprised if people expect you to act like a Christian, right? I mean, you're walking out into the world and God has a set of a code of conduct for us to operate by and people are surprised when they get called out for not living that way. Listen, there's a code of conduct. You, 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 you kind of, in a way, when you came to Christ, you signed over your life. And you said, I'm going to, you know, it's, it, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself for me. You gave your life over to him, and so you need to represent him well. When we assemble, there, there should be a conduct of, of service to one another. There should be a conduct of, of laying down one's life to one another, to ministering to each other, to contributing uh, to, 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 the, to the things that are going on within our church. That should happen, but when you leave this place, that should continue to happen outside of the four walls. You should be ministering and laying down your life and loving people that don't deserve to be loved. You should be representing Christ. Paul is speaking to Timothy here in this specific letter about the fundamentals of the faith, really. There's a crisis going on in Ephesus where Timothy is. And, and, and Timothy doesn't know how to handle it. And so Paul is writing to Timothy and saying, listen, these are the things that you need to, be, you need to consider within the, 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 the context of the church and help these people to understand, but he has to understand them first. So this is a personal letter from Paul to Timothy about how to, how to manage the church or how to, how to oversee it well. And so as we come to these verses here today, this is really what I believe to be the core of the letter. This is the, 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 the reason why Paul is writing this. He said in verse 14, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing that these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. This is what, what, what we find in this chapter is the call to the Christian code of conduct. Paul is calling Timothy to a certain way of life, to a certain set of behaviors. This is, again, the, the crux of the passage. That's why we, we're calling the sermon series House Rules because it's really ultimately about how we're to, to, to do life together here and how that's supposed to manifest itself outside of the four walls of the, of the church. It's important that we all understand that although we are saved by grace, that our past, present, and future sin has been dealt with by Jesus Christ upon the cross, that there are expectations from on high expectations from the Savior of the world that we would conduct ourselves in a way that would reflect His nature and His character and would honor Him. 
Jesus taught a sermon like that. It's, we call it the Sermon on the Mount, right? Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. That's one account. The Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5 contains the character traits that we are to have. Matthew chapter 6, the commitments that we are to have towards the Lord and towards others. And finally, Matthew chapter 7, the choices we are to make as true disciples of Jesus Christ. We should be very familiar with these uh, particular verses in the Bible. This is Jesus' words to his disciples. And in fact, these are really the things that Paul is pulling out of and talking to Timothy about. Remember, Jesus said, the Great Commission, go into all the world and make disciples teaching them to observe all that I have taught you. We're not creating new teaching. We're simply taking what Jesus said and telling other people what he said. If you really want to get to the core of the code of conduct for the Christian, you need to just simply go to Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, and you can see what Jesus expects of us. And I will tell you that it's impossible to live that way on your own, outside of the power of the Holy Spirit. We need, we need the power of the Holy Spirit to live this life. Today we're going to consider the, the, the call to the code, the clout of the code, and finally the confession regarding the code. Uh, we find in verses 14 and 15 our commitment defined and also our foundation confirmed. And then in verse 16 we find our message declared. We begin with the call to the code, which is our commitment defined in verse 14. I hope to come to you soon. But I'm writing these things to you so that, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. You have to love a friend like Paul. Paul's the kind of guy that, um, you know, when at all possible, wants to get face-to-face -face with you. I know that's strange in our culture because most of the time it's just way more convenient for us to text somebody to send them an email or, you know, whatever. We, we, can, we can FaceTime and, and do all of these different things. But, but Paul is the kind of guy that would much rather have a face-to-face -face conversation with somebody so that he could express to them the truth, so that you could see, are they getting it or not getting it? You know, there's something about in-person conversation that, that, that helps us, shapes the conversation, helps us understand if, if it's clicking or if we're communicating well or, you know, all these types of things. We have body language and we have all these, all these different parameters that we can, we can see that will help us know if we're connecting. It's really difficult to do that. How many of you guys have misunderstood a, a text before? Oh, well, you're, blah, 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 you know, you're like, oh, and they're like, whoa, 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 chill out, bro. What are you doing? I was just, I used an exclamation point to tell you, I was, I was excited, I didn't know you would take it that way. You, apparently English uh, stuff matters, I don't know. But, um, so be careful about your texting, right? I, I've done that. You, you used all caps. Dude, it was stuck on, I didn't know how to turn it off. I, don't know. <laughs> I mean, you know what I mean? It's, it's like that, but, 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 but the reality is, we need, Paul wanted to communicate to Timothy face to face. But for some reason, he couldn't. And so he said, he didn't just can the conversation and go, oh, well, we'll hold that off and I'll have this conversation with you later. No, because it was urgent. Like the, 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 con the context of this is Timothy is discouraged. He wants to leave. He's, just, he's tired of being in Ephesus. He doesn't know how to do his job. And so Paul says, dude, I'm, let me write this down for you 
so that you have it. And then when I come to you, then you and I can have that conversation. But I'm going to make sure you have the information first, right? And, and so, so he, he writes this down. This is not coincidence. It's not coincidence that, again, this is a personal letter from Paul to Timothy. Timothy was his son in the faith. This is his disciple. He, you know, Paul is his, 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 his discipler. He's the guy that he's looking up to, his mentor. And yet the Holy Spirit said, I want you to write this down. And this is going to be canonized in the scriptures so that people can learn from this for the rest of all of eternity. His word endures forever. I'm a firm believer that much of what Paul wrote in the New Testament, he had no idea that he was writing the word of God. That goes to show you, I think, that maybe you can be being used by God in ways that you have no idea you're being used by God. Paul, I don't really felt, feel like he had an understanding that his letters were going to be read 2,000 years later to a group of people that aren't in Ephesus, that aren't necessarily facing the exact same issue that Timothy is, and yet the Holy Spirit knew. And the Holy Spirit said, I'm going to preserve these words because they're my words to my son, Timothy, the Lord is saying. And he wants him to understand. Paul is writing these things to Timothy, listen, for his benefit, so that he would know, so that Timothy would know. There's things Timothy does not know. There, there's things in ministry that Timothy does not have an understanding of, and, and, and Paul is saying, you know, I need to get him the information. Why? Because if you, if you try and do your job for very long without really knowing what you're doing, what's going to happen? You're going to quit, Right? Nobody wants, to, nobody wants to sit in a pool of failure, right? I mean, we don't want to just keep sit. It's funny because we don't, but we do. Like, we'll, sometimes we'll sit in the same place doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result, and we're like, I just don't understand why I'm not growing in the Lord. Well, what are you doing? Nothing. Oh, well, that, I mean, you know, that might have something to do with it, but, um, but, but yet... Paul, you know, nobody wants to really sit in a job where they're active and they're trying to fulfill their calling in their life and not have any idea what they're supposed to be doing. That's frustrating. I mean, I've been there with the Lord at times, you know, where I know that he's telling me to do something and I just don't know exactly what it is. And so I wait and I'm like, Lord, come on, just show me, you know. I know you want me to do something, but what, what it is it that you want me to do? And, and uh, you know, we wait on God until he tells us. But listen, he's faithful to tell us because he doesn't want to discourage us. He doesn't want to, um, he, he's a father that doesn't want to give his, put, put, place his children in a, pla in a place of just discouragement. Paul is telling Timothy information that he needs to know in relation to how people ought to behave. Paul is giving Timothy the information so that Timothy can give other people the information Timothy apparently doesn't know how the church is supposed to operate, how it's supposed to be organized, and all of these things. And so Paul's teaching him first how people ought to behave. In, listen, the, the household of God, that phrase there, household, literally means family. In the household of God. So, so in other words, what Paul is helping Timothy to understand is that we're a family. We're, we're a family. I mean, we say that, but are we? In God's eyes, we are. We, we call each other brother and sister and, and all of these kinds of things. And in, and in the Word of God, it clearly states that we're, 
we're a family. That word household is describing those related by blood and marriage as well as slaves and servants living in the same household or homestead. We're one big, happy family, folks. We're, we're one gigantic, you know, <laughs> a dysfunctional in some ways family, right? And, and you think about that for a second. You go, that, people go, well, I don't, I don't want to be a part of the church because it's just, it's, it's messy. Isn't every family messy? Listen, when I grew up, there was a kid that was one, my best friend growing up in middle school, and I, I, I watched his family because I had a dysfunctional family. My family was messed up. And I, and I watched this guy's family, and I longed to be in his family. You ever done that? Like, you're like, man, I wish that I was born in this guy's family because this guy has what? The perfect family. Right? So I had this idea that his family was perfect. His mom was the principal of the school system, you know, our school, and his dad owned his own business, and they, they were really tight family, you know, and they did a lot together, and every, every day after school, you know, my buddy would come home, and he'd call his dad up, hey, what are you doing? And, you know, they, they would have these conversations, totally unlike the life that I had. And so I was like, man, this is awesome. Not to mention that the guy had about 150 guns laying around all over the place and, and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> I mean, I'm like, wow, your dad just leaves all this stuff out. <laughs> but not smart these days. But, but, um, and then my friend started to share with me a little bit about his family that I didn't know. He started telling me about his, his uncle that was, you know, in prison for the mul multitude of times, you know, and then talking about his sisters who were all messed up and they had all these different issues going on in their family. And I was, and, and I came to the realization wait, your family's not perfect? It looks perfect to me. It, it looks like something that, that I would want to be part of, and yet the reality is that it was just hidden well. Every family has its dysfunctional parts. Every family, because we're imperfect people. And so if you're expecting to walk into the family of God and say, well, this needs to be perfect, well, guess what? It never will be. Not on this earth. Not, not here. It will not ever be fully perfect However, that doesn't mean that we sow into dysfunction, right? Oh, well, we, we don't want to sow into that, but we have to understand that it will, it will exist. Paul is telling Timothy how people need to conduct themselves inside of the household of God. And, 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 and so he's going to give us really ultimately as we move forward in the next three chapters some very specific things about the kind of conduct that needs to happen inside of the, the four walls. And, and really, they're all negative uh, things. Tell them to stop doing this, stop doing this, stop doing this, stop doing this. A lot of that, a lot of negative commands that are saying, listen, this is what's happening, this needs to stop. Those kinds of things will start to um, come out. Right now, he's calling um, Timothy to the code of conduct. And, and, and notice, not only are we the family of God, but we are, listen, the church of the living God. We are the ecclesia, literally the assembly, the called out ones, the regularly summoned legislative body of the living God. That's who we are. We are the church. This is not the church. We're the church of, listen, the living God. He's a living God. He's active and alive, and he's in your life. In every single detail of your life, you are his church. Peter said it like this, we're living stones. 
And guess what? Our cornerstone is Jesus Christ. He's the one. He's our foundation. He's who we build upon. But we're living stones. We are the church of the living God. Thus, we take the household of God everywhere we go because we're the church. That, my friends, is a huge responsibility. We're no longer to act and to do whatever it is that we want. We were set free from the bonds of sin to be, listen, slaves of righteousness. Paul said it like this in Romans chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. He said, but thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin, have become obedient to the heart of the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you were once presented, just as once you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. Paul is making it super clear in Romans chapter 6 that our commitments have to change. Our commitments have to change. We can no longer be committed to the flesh. We can no longer sow into the flesh because the, the flesh is a slave to sin. We've been set free from that and so what we need to do is sow into the Spirit of God so that we can sow into righteousness, living out that righteousness. We can't become righteous on our own, but we can live out the righteousness that we've been given through Christ. Does that make sense? You were a slave to sin. Now you're a slave to righteousness. There's been a change in your life. That's why if, you, um, you know, if anybody's in Christ, he's a new creation. You're not the same person. You, 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 you were a slave to sin, but now you're a slave to righteousness, right? You, you've been changed. You've been transformed. And that's why, as Paul says, you know, um, to, 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 to consider whether you're in the faith, to, to, to look, consider your salvation with fear and trembling to make sure you're in the faith. Why? Because we can, we can, we can fool ourselves into thinking we have something that we don't. What, what do I mean? Well, we can go to church we can read our Bible. We can do all the things that everybody else is doing on the external and assume that there's been, uh, you know, assume we're going to heaven. But if there's not been an inward change in your heart, then guess what? You're still a slave to sin. You have not been redeemed. You're not being born again. When you're born again, there's a change. That is the point. There has to be a change in your life. We have become obedient from the heart of the standard of teaching to which we were committed. Paul is saying, I deliver you to the teaching of Jesus Christ that you would commit yourself to obedience to, to his, to his um, code of conduct. That's why we're, we're rolling out kind of this, this idea of core commitments of the church, you know, this card right here. The reason why we're rolling this out, you got a bookmarker today that talks to you about um, you know, it's all these points, these eight different commitments on uh, a bookmarker so you can put it in your Bible. The reason why we feel like we needed to write these down and, and put them out in writing to people is because most of this stuff isn't followed. You know, th these are the basics. 
I, I mean, I, I look at this card like sort of like uh, Vince Lombardi when he was frustrated with, it, with, with the Packers one time and he came into the locker room and he said, gentlemen, this is a football. You know, I mean, they know what a football is. They're in the NFL, right? But he said, gentlemen, this is a football. Let's get back to the fundamentals of the faith. And, and somewhere along the lines, we've, we've lost some of these code, the code of conduct in some of these ways. And so, you know, th this isn't an exhaustive list, but it's a list. And it's something that, that I, I, I have the Lord put on my heart that, hey, we need to really make these visible because these are the things that really ultimately I, I think are missing in the church today. Number one, glorification. That everything that we do is to be done for the glory of God, not for the glory of man, ever. For the glory of God. Number two, that we are commit to identification, meaning we're not allowing what we do to become our identity. I'm not the director of children's ministry, the pastor of the church, or you know, the, the, the barista in the coffee shop. I'm in Christ. That's my identity. Not, not what I do, but who I know and who changed my life. The identification. There's a huge misunderstanding in our world today, folks, about identification. Thirdly, magnification, that we use our gifts and talents to magnify King Jesus. Fourthly, we commit to multiplication, that we are fulfilling the calling to make disciples. Statistically speaking, most people, 95% of people in the church will share their faith once in a year with somebody. Once. I don't think that was the idea that Jesus thought about when he said, go into all the world and make disciples. Fifthly, reconciliation. That when someone sins against you, and I promise it will happen, when somebody sins against you, that you go show your brother his fault, that you go and talk to them. It's, it's not necessarily, and I don't want to say it this way, but it's not necessarily your problem if they like that or not. The reality is that if somebody sinned against you, you need to deal with it. Why? For your own sake, that you don't hold on to unforgiveness and bitterness in your heart, that you deal with that. At the same token, the Bible says don't come to the communion table if you have something against your brother. If you personally have something against somebody, don't go, to the, don't go to the table. That's a table, listen, of reconciliation. Communion is a, is a picture of reconciliation. A holy God, unholy people, met by the blood of Christ, faith in him, and that's what marries us to, to the Lord, Jesus Christ. So we need to be committed to reconciliation. Uh, sixthly, maturation, that we're maturing in the Lord, that we're not comfortable just skating through life the rest of our life right where we are. The Lord wants you to grow. Seventh, participation, that you're participating in each other's lives. The idea of that word is really the word koinonia, which is what we get the idea of fellowship, that we're in fellowship with each other, that we're doing life together, you know, and in and, 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 and real ways, not just um, saying we are. And then finally, contribution, that we're sowing into the, the work that God is doing financially, that we're giving to the Lord, not not to, to me or to the church, but you're giving to the Lord. Uh, it, it, there's no question whatsoever when it comes to the scriptures whether or not you're supposed to give. Right? That, that's not even a question. The question is, is always how much? And we have the New Testament mandate that says that God loves a cheerful giver. He's not, it's not about a percentage, folks. It's not about how much, you know, it's not about making sure you get it to the dot your I's and cross your T's and make sure it's exactly 10%. That's, that, that word is tithe, and, 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 and it was a, a picture of giving to God, but, but ultimately we are under an 
a sort of an offering idea in the church where we freely give whatever it is that you desire to give. But make sure you give something. That's the point. That's what Paul said to the church of Corinth. He said, God loves a cheerful giver. Don't give begrudgingly. Don't give, if, if, if you struggle with that, listen, it's because you have a misunderstanding or you've, been, you've, been, you've had somebody um, explain it to you incorrectly. Somebody's tried to pull the emotional strings of your heart to, to loosen your, your purse strings so they can, they can loosen money out of your pocket. That's not the point. That's not, that's not offering to the Lord. Offering to God is, here you go, Lord. I love to do this for you, not, God, I hate doing this, you know, kind of thing. I love giving to the Lord, man. I love it because I'm storing my treasures up in heaven. And, and you know, the Lord has blessed me tremendously. There is, a, there is a blessing through that. So these eight things, these are the eight core commitments of Calvary. Why are we doing them? Because these are, these are, these are um, code of conduct in the Bible, and in fact, you'll see there's, there's scripture references for every one of these, multiple scripture references. I would encourage you to go back and read them. If you're struggling in an area of one of these areas in your life, listen, the best, the, the, the thing about it is, is don't just pretend not to know. Look into it. Make sure you have a correct understanding of it. We want to have biblical minds that think in biblical ways, not just however we want. We're the family of God the church of the living God, and listen, these things will help us uh, live in such a way to honor our Lord, to, to live out the code that we've been called to. So we find the call, the call to, con, to the code of conduct. Next, the clout of the code of conduct. This describes the foundation of our code. Look at the, verse of, the rest of verse 15 there where Paul goes on to say, we are a pillar and buttress of the truth. We're a pillar each one of us individually a pillar and a buttress of the truth. In this time frame, when Paul was writing to Timothy, there was one of the seven wonders of the world in Ephesus. It was the temple of Diana, remember? And one of the things that made this temple so magnificent was the pillars, the columns that, that stood, that, that, that held up that, um, that temple there. According to William Barclay, he said the temple contained 127 pillars, each one of them the gift of a king. So the kings would come and give a column to set a column up, uh, and they would, he says, they, they were made out of marble, and they were studded with jewels and, and overlaid with gold. They were beautiful. They were a spectacle to, to look at. It's like, how magnificent. Look at those pillars. And if you've ever gone to Israel or you've ever gone through um, Europe and you've seen some of the old you know, architecture and stuff, you're like, dude, these pillars are gigantic. How in the heck did they even erect those things and get them to, you know, I mean, it's amazing to see the things they did. But they were making a statement. Those, these pillars were making a statement. That, but they had a function, too. See, they weren't just beautiful on the outside, but they were strong and sturdy on the inside because if they weren't, they wouldn't be able to fulfill their function, which is to hold up the temple. I mean, the, 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 the illustration that Paul is giving here is uncanny. We are pillars of the faith. You and I, as 
people in Christ. We're pillars and we're, we're buttresses, literally, that which provides the basis or, a, or foundation for belief or practice. We are the foundation, literally, um, foundation of support of what? He goes on to tell us the truth of the truth. You are in, in, in the world a reflection of the truth. What he's saying is back in this day, the, the, the kings would take edicts and they would post them on these pillars for everybody to see. And they say, this is what you need to know. Boom, they post it on there. And every, it was visible for, for everyone. That's what God has done with you. He said, look at my son. Look at my daughter. They're my pillar. The truth has been posted on their life. Look at their life. And you're like, wait, wait, wait. Not my life. Don't look at my life. You're a pillar. The king should be able to post upon your life the truth, and people should be able to see it. That's the point. He's saying that, that as a pillar, we are to be a, a reflection of the truth. We are to be a foundation for the truth. I like what David Guzik said. He said, it isn't that the church is the foundation for the truth, but that the church holds up the truth so that the world can see it. We support the truth by your life, by the way that you live your life. What Paul is saying is that how you and I live our lives before the world either credits or discredits the truth. Is that a responsibility or what? That's pretty heavy when you think about it. Whoa. You mean how I live my life can diminish, diminish, the, 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 the defame the Lord before people and his truth? Yes, and we see it all the time. And in fact, how many unbelievers have you come across and say, yeah, I know you Christians. I've seen how you do business or I've seen how you interact with each other or this or that. Why? Because the truth isn't being supported. It's not being, it's not being visibly seen in the lives of his people. We are what give the truth clout in the world, church. You, your testimony, your changed life says something to everybody around you. Or not. Or not. Calvin said the church is the pillar of the truth because it is the ministry of the truth and it's how it's preserved and spread. You, you are, you are, you are to be the ministry of the truth. You are to preserve the truth by the way that you live your life, to spread the truth without even saying a word, just by how you live in your life. Wearsby said, listen, the unfaithful Christian is weakening the very foundation of God's truth in the world. The unfaithful Christian is weakening the very foundation of God's truth in the world. God has chosen to manifest his truth through his church, through his church. So our mission is to let the truth be seen through our lives. We're not just pretty pillars that walk in and out of a building on Sunday and we check it off the list, but we are pillars that 
on the outside are beautifully wrecked. The Lord has done an incredible job in your life and he has changed you and you, have, you can see the fingerprints of God on your life, but you are sturdy and strong inside that you're upholding the truth with the way that you live your life. This brings us to our, the final thoughts that Paul has here regarding the confession of the code. Verse 16, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Paul, after calling all believers to the code of conduct and revealing the clout of the code, now goes on to our confession. He says, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. And how great it is. We must confess the mystery of godliness if we ever hope to live out the code of conduct in our lives. We have to confess the mystery of godliness. What is the mystery of godliness? What is it? The mystery of godliness is Jesus Christ, folks. That's what he goes on to tell us. It's the manifest presence of Jesus Christ. And it's Jesus Christ living through you. That's what he's saying, the mystery of godliness. Again, the concept, we talked about this last week, the word mystery isn't something that's concealed to, in some mysterious way that we can't really figure out what it means. That's not what mystery means in the Bible. Mystery means something that has been concealed so that it can be revealed. So we have a mystery of the Lord in the Old Testament, and we have you know, all these different pictures of Jesus Christ in and, and, and all these different ways. They were mysteries back then, but now they are revealed to us, and we can look backwards and say, wow, look, look at the typology of Christ throughout the entire Old Testament. That's what he means by mystery, and those mysteries... Um, as we continue to walk in life, you, you know, uh, will be revealed to us through the understanding of his scripture. Paul is saying the mystery of godliness is Jesus Christ. If you go to the dictionary, you look up the word godliness, it says Jesus Christ. No, it really doesn't, but let's just say it does because that, that's what I'm... It, it really is the definition of godliness, Jesus Christ. He is godly, godlike. Jesus Christ is the only one that is God-like. And so Paul is saying the confession that we need to make is about Jesus. The confession that we live our lives is never about how good we are, how strong we are, all the things that we've done. But it's always about Jesus Christ, who he is, what he's done in your life, and what he wants to do in the lives of other people. It's always about Jesus. There are six different manifestations of the mystery of godliness through Jesus Christ that Paul mentions here. The mystery of godliness is first found in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, that he was manifest in the flesh. Now, some of your versions of the Bible, I don't know what you have, but some of them it might say, rather than say he, it might say God was manifest in the flesh. In the in the early, some of the some of the early manuscripts, that translation from he, or it was God, and we translated it. A lot of some other ones said he. Well, what what's the difference? They're the, both the same thing because Jesus is God. But but some of your versions may say God 
was manifest in the flesh. Jesus Christ is God, folks. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And listen, the Word was God. Not was a God, but was God. He was in the beginning with God. Then John 1.14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ is Emmanuel, God with us. So we have the incarnation of Jesus Christ as part of the mystery of godliness. Secondly, we find the mystery of godliness is found in the fact that Jesus was vindicated by the Spirit. Literally, he was declared righteous by the Spirit of God, both at his baptism and his resurrection. So we find Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 through 17, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened up to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14 tells us that when we believe in Christ, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. He descends upon us, and now he is the guarantee of our inheritance. The picture of Jesus when he was baptized, the Holy Spirit descending on him is the Father's signet ring on Jesus that says he is my representative. He is the, the one that you should be looking to. It goes on here and it says the heavens were opened up and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Verse 17, and behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Then again, in his resurrection, Romans chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, it says, concerning his son, who was, descended from, who, was a descent, who, dis, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So we see both the vindication of the spirit of God in the baptism of Jesus and we also see it in the resurrection of Jesus. Thirdly, the mystery of godliness is found in Jesus being seen by angels. Listen, the angelic presence in Jesus' life was literally from, from beginning to end. There's literally bookmarks of, of angelic presence in his life from the point that Mary was impregnated and an angel came to Mary and said, listen, you're gonna have a son. He's going to be the son of God. You're a virgin. You're going, to be, you're going to birth the Messiah. Angelic presence in his life. When he died and he, was, he rose again from the dead, angelic presence all over the place to shepherds out in the, um, out in the fields, to, to people at the tomb. There were angels everywhere. He was seen by angels and they observed Jesus throughout his whole life. And they watched him. They watched his life. And you know what? They were probably blown away that he would do that for us because they see us too and they see who we are and they and the bible says that we're teaching angels what are we teaching them <laughs> we're teaching them about the grace of god is what we are doing we're teaching them how much the love of god that that it surpasses all things that that god loves us beyond what is even comprehensible the, the idea that he was seen by angels again uh, signifies divine approval. Fourthly, the mystery of godliness is found in the fact that Jesus was proclaimed among the nations. Again, Jesus was, he sent missionaries into the world. He sent 
all of his disciples into the world to go and make disciples, to tell people about the Lord. And that mandate has gone on today. That We still have the same great commission that everybody else has to go into all the world. He told his disciples, go into your Jerusalem, your Samaria, Judea, and to the ends of the earth. They're literally nowhere that we shouldn't be willing to go to take the gospel. We're supposed to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. He was proclaimed among the nations. Fifthly, the mystery of godliness is found in those who believed on, literally, him in the world. Uh, the message the apostles were preaching required a response of faith. You know, they, it's just not enough to hear the gospel, but you have to believe on Jesus. You can't just believe in Jesus. The Bible says that demons believe in Jesus and they tremble, but they're not saved. Salvation requires believing on Jesus. What's the difference? The difference is a difference of understanding and, and knowledge versus really um, understanding. It, it, it's the idea of, of knowing who Jesus is and then giving him your entire life. Those are the two differences. If you are believing on Jesus, you're saying, here's my life. Take it over. Do whatever you want to do with it. You believe in Jesus. He's just an adjunct to your life but you're still in control. Which, which one are you this morning? Do you believe in Jesus or do you believe on Jesus? Have you truly received Jesus in your life? That's the biggest question you need to ask yourself. Sixth and finally we find the mystery of Godness is found in the fact um, that Jesus was taken up in glory. Again, we find that his account, the ascension of his account in Acts chapter 1 Verse, verses 9 through 11, where it says, And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took, it, took him up out of their sight. And while they were gazing into the heavens as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? And this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same manner um, in the, the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And again, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, speaking to Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the power of his word. Listen, after making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. There's a whole bunch of theology in there, but we won't get into that. The point of it is this. The ascension of Jesus Christ is God's final approval upon his life, his death, and his resurrection. He received Jesus up into heaven. He was acceptable to, to, because Jesus was perfect. He was taken up to glory. These are the six defining articles of the mystery of godliness we find, and they are our confession, literally, to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. He is the mystery of godliness and our only hope for redemption, folks. Jesus Christ. And as we close this morning, I want to, you to consider the code of conduct that you're called to. Just like as you go into your employer and you look at the employee handbook and you, you read that code and you said, yeah, I, I accept that. I'll, 
I'll live my life according to this. You know, and, and whether you take it serious or not is, is, is a whole different situation. But the reality is that the, the same holds true for Christians, but it's far more important. I hope you see this morning as we consider the fact that we're pillars, that we're the buttress of the truth, that literally people are looking at our lives and they should be able to see clearly the gospel at work in our life. That's the biggest question for you this morning is, Lord, am I living according to that code? Not according to my own flesh, but according to your spirit. Am I walking in the power of your spirit? Is my life reflecting the glory of who you are? Listen, this is what I know about the Lord. If it's not, today can be the day that it all changes. He can change that in a moment. He wants to do that. He wants to give you the power to live the life that he's calling you to live. He does not call you to do something that you are incapable of doing, folks. He will never, ever tell you to love your neighbors yourself as if it's impossible. It is possible. Why? Because we have the Spirit of God within us. The same Spirit that filled Jesus Christ, that worked through his heart, is working through your heart. And, he, and we should love people in the same manner he loves people because the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love. And it manifests itself in joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The love of the Holy Spirit flowing through you. So examine your hearts this morning. Ask the Lord, God, I want to step into that calling. And if I haven't, if you're, if you're not a believer here today, listen, Jesus wants to save you from your sin. He wants to forgive you. And we're going to partake of communion today. And that cup, that cup and that little bread, they represent the blood that was shed for you. Jesus went to the cross to die for the sin of the world. And, and he included you in on that. Your, your sin isn't greater than anybody else's sin. He can forgive anybody's sin doesn't matter what it is. The only sin that he can't forgive is the sin that is unwilling to repent, the sin that is the unpardonable sin of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. You say, I don't want Jesus. That's what I believe blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. It's the only thing that he can't forgive you from. This morning, if you don't have a relationship with Christ, may today be the day. You simply pray a prayer to him of faith, sincerity, say, Lord, I want my sins to be forgiven today. I know that I've missed the mark, but today I want to receive you as my Lord. I want to believe on you, Jesus. Confess you as my Lord. I believe that you died on the cross for me, that you rose again from the dead for me personally, and I want to trade my life, give my life over to you now and make me a Christian. It's a prayer like that. It doesn't have to be those words. It's a prayer of faith that's turning your life over to him. You don't need a pastor to lead you through that. You can do that yourself right where you are. You know, we're going to, the worship team's going to come up. We're going to, you know, usher ourselves into worship. You guys will come forward and grab the, the elements yourselves, and then you partake on your own. But listen, seriously consider before you do that, what is my conduct like, Lord? Am I reflecting the Spirit of God in my life? Am I upholding the truth? Am I, am I a pillar that you can post? Look at my son here. As the Lord did to Job, look at my son Job, the way that he lived his life. May that be said of you, amen? Lord, we thank you for your word this morning and thank you so much, Lord, for just this time in First Timothy. What a blessing it's been. And we ask you today, Lord, that you help each, and, each one of us to consider, Lord, where we stand 
Lord, are we, are we in Christ today? If we are in Christ, Lord, are we living our lives in accordance to the call of the code of conduct? Are we living our lives in a way that would reflect who you are? Father, is there enough evidence to convict us if we were to be brought into court of being a Christian? Lord, it's, it's not a, simply about external things, but it has to be from an internal heart. It starts with our hearts. That's why we have to be born again. So Lord, we, we confess this morning, none of us are perfect. All of us have blown it in different ways, Lord. We thank you for your forgiveness, that you're faithful to forgive, Lord, that the blood of Christ washes us clean this morning. We thank you for just the elements that we will partake of and reflect upon this morning. The blood that was shed, the body that was broken for us. Lord, we thank you. We ask you to move in this place in these remaining minutes, Lord, that we would bring honor and glory to you and that you would speak to every single heart. Every person would be honest with themselves and honest with your spirit this morning. Will you just come now? We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.